Okay, I'm going to blow your mind right from the get-go in this week's episode. Did you know that the television character MacGyver's first name was Angus? You have seen the 80s TV show MacGyver, right? Well, even if you have not seen it, you're probably somewhat familiar with it, no? The show played on ABC TV and starred the awesomely mulleted Richard Dean Anderson as the title character who was resolved to end conflicts using non-violent measures, although in the pilot episode, he does use an AK-47. MacGyver works for the fictional company The Phoenix Foundation in Los Angeles, California, and he is trained as a scientist and an agent for the fictional U.S. Department of External Services, or DXS. He always has his trusty Swiss Army knife handy and often a roll of duct tape, which is flattened in his back pocket. He also seemed to always have matches, paper clips, gum, and a flashlight readily available, and he kept a toolbox in his Jeep. He was a genius problem solver who worked well under pressure and could pick locks, fly a plane, defuse bombs, and was well-versed in chemistry, archaeology, and physics. And he would mostly focus on subduing his enemy rather than killing them, and he interpolated that consideration for life to animals as Angus became a vegetarian over the course of the season, which was evidenced by the episode titled Walking Dead. And if that wasn't enough, he could also speak, at least a little, German, French, Russian, Spanish, Italian, ASL, Morse code, and he was also familiar with international maritime signal flags. And even though he was afraid of heights... That didn't stop him from hang gliding, parachuting, and mountain climbing. He enjoyed racing, painting, playing guitar, and playing ice hockey. Duh, he's got the mullet for it, otherwise known as hockey hair. And the fact that MacGyver's first name is Angus didn't even come up on the program until the seventh season in the episode titled Good Night MacGyver, night spelled with a K. Until then, he was referred to as MacGyver or Mac, except by his grandfather who called him Bud or Buddy. MacGyver was born on March 23, 1951 in Minnesota and as a young boy, he was a Cub Scout with a den mother who showed him the importance of, quote, backwood common sense, end quote, and taught him to, quote, prepared. MacGyver got his first chemistry set at the age of 10, and at the age of 12, a good friend of his named Jesse was shot by a bullet and died, making Angus forever dislike guns. MacGyver graduated from Western Tech with a BA in physics and chemistry, and he served in Vietnam briefly as part of a bomb-diffusing team. And one of his early careers was that of a race car driver. But an accident put him out of the business and he went to Los Angeles where he worked as a taxi driver until he saved the life of Peter Thornton of DXS by using a wrench, a paperclip, and some shoelaces. Mac was then asked to be a field agent and work for DXS until Season 2, when he left the organization to become the Director of Operations at the Phoenix Foundation, where his duties included being a troubleshooter for a myriad of tasks in the field, like testing security systems and doing environmental surveys. The word MacGyver has become synonymous with being able to find a simple but elegant solution to problems by using the resources around you. And I am not ashamed to admit 
that this guy was my childhood idol and is one of the reasons that I myself carry a Swiss army knife most places I go to. And with that, I have introduced the four topics that we will be MacGyvering into a Scattered Curiosities episode. Swiss Army Knives, Matches, Duct Tape, and the Boy Scouts of America. This is Swiss Army Scouts. In episode 2.1 of Scattered Curiosities, Emperors, Robber Barons, Cowboys, and Indians Part 1, I told you that I was a Boy Scout. But I should confess that I did not finish the Boy Scouting program ages 11 through 18, but I did finish Cub Scouts ages 7 through 10 just before it. And my three favorite memories from scouting are the Pinewood Derby, getting my first Swiss Army knife, and going camping. And I desperately wanted to earn the golden arrow of the Weebolo that my older brother had on his wall in his bedroom. But I did not have quite the follow-through that I possess today. But I am a scout at heart. The Boy Scouts of America, or BSA, was designed to build character, responsible citizens, and resilience through education, outdoor activities, and community service. And the Boy Scout oath goes, quote, On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the Scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight, end quote. The Scout law is, quote, a scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. End quote. The scout motto, quote, be prepared, and the scout slogan, quote, do a good turn daily, end quote. In the early 20th century, Many migrants were making their way into the city centers, and there was an overwhelming sense that some of them were void of patriotism, and reforms for young men in America were being pursued by organizations like the YMCA, but they were focused on welfare, mental, and religious issues. The Boy Scouts of America was not the first organization of its kind. There were the Woodcraft Indians in 1902, the Sons of Daniel Boone in 1905, and individual scouting-like programs sprang up all over the country. But the BSA became the conglomerate that melded them all together. Have you ever heard of the Unknown Scout? Why should you? He's unknown. But he was key to the formation of the BSA. In 1909, a Chicago publisher named W.D. Boyce was lost in London on a foggy evening, and this unknown scout appeared out of nowhere and helped him find where he was going. The English scouting movement had started two years prior. And when W.D. Boyce tried to give the kid a tip, the young man refused it and said that he was a Boy Scout just doing his good deed for the day. And Boyce was so impressed that he met with the Boy Scout headquarters in London and would later use it to influence his development of the Boy Scouts of America a year later and Boyce managed to get the support from the head of the Woodcraft Indians, Ernest Thompson Seton, the sons of Daniel Boone, Daniel Carter Beard, and former President Theodore Roosevelt. 
And their goal in 1910 was to, quote, teach patriotism, courage, self-reliance, and kindred values, end quote. Since its installation in 1910, whoever is the president of the United States is also the honorary president of the Boy Scouts of America. The Eagle Scout rank was introduced in 1911, and it requires 21 merit badges minimum. Not as easy as it sounds. Some Eagle Scouts of note are Steven Spielberg, Neil Armstrong, Michael Moore, Gerald Ford, and former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. In fact, over two-thirds of all American astronauts have some past connection to scouting, including 11 of the 12 men to walk on the moon. Scattered curiosity, Boys Life magazine covers were illustrated by Norman Rockwell starting in 1913 and the annual Boy Scouts of America calendar from 1925 to 1976. While there has been much controversy over the years on the topic of homosexuals being allowed to join the BSA, it should be noted that the group has made great strides in being a more inclusive organization, and on January 30th, 2017, the Boy Scouts of America announced that it would let transgender boys into the program, and a week later the BSA admitted its first openly transgender boy into the scouting program. This is truly refreshing news because, at its core, the Boy Scouts of America seeks to develop the country's young men into upstanding and respectable citizens. Because let me tell you something. Men's behavior in this country and the world, especially regarding the treatment of women, has been an embarrassment to me as a member of the lesser sex. Sorry, fellas. It's true. I witness men catcalling women on a daily basis in this city, and I think to myself, what would your mother say? And I wonder if a program like scouting would help deter such behavior. Littering, too. I hate litter, both the cat and trash kind. Just listen to an excerpt from the introduction to the very first Boy Scouts Handbook of 1911 by Ernest Thompson Seton himself. Quote, Scout used to mean the one on watch for the rest. We have widened the word a little. We have made it fit the town as well as the wilderness and suited it to peacetime instead of war. We have made the scout an expert in lifecraft as well as woodcraft, for he is trained in the things of the heart as well as the head and hand. Scouting we have made to cover riding, swimming, tramping, trailing, photography, first aid, camping, handicraft, loyalty, obedience, courtesy, thrift, courage, and kindness. Do these things appeal to you? Do you love the woods? Do you wish to learn the trees as a forester knows them? And the stars, not as an astronomer, but as a traveler? Do you wish to have all-around, well-developed muscles, not that of a great athlete, but those of a sound body that will not fail you? Would you like to be an expert camper who can always make himself comfortable out of doors and a swimmer that fears no waters? Do you desire the knowledge to help the wounded quickly and to make yourself cool and self-reliant in an emergency? Do you believe in loyalty, courage, and kindness? Would you like to form habits that will surely make your success in life? Then, whether you be a farm boy or shoe clerk, newsboy or millionaire's son, your place is in our ranks, for these are the thoughts in scouting. It will help you do better work with your pigs, your shoes, 
your papers, or your dollars. It will give you new pleasures in life. It will teach you so much of the outdoor world that you wish to know. And this handbook, the work of many men, each a leader in his field, is their best effort to show you the way. This is, indeed, the book that I so longed for in those far-off days when I wandered, heart-hungry, into the woods. End quote. How could any parent not want that for their child? The entire quote sounds appealing to me. Personally, I think that a few quick fixes could put the Boy Scouts of America back into the respected light that it once enjoyed if it would just remove the religious references to God in its credo. Because we need honest, helpful, august, confident, self-reliant people in this world. And I would think, with the popularity of post-apocalyptic TV shows like The Walking Dead, that people would be more into the concept of being prepared. I have my to-go panic kit already prepped for the zombie apocalypse, and you should too. And in it is a compass, a crank-powered radio, a travel-sized first aid kit, an LED light, a water bottle and iodine tablets, candles, granola bars, peanut butter, rope, a windbreaker, a plastic tarp, a hatchet, a whistle, fishing line, a small cooking pot, magnifying glass, flint, wool socks, a winter hat and gloves, a sleeping bag, a lighter, strike anywhere matches, and, of course, my Swiss army knife and a roll of duct tape, just like MacGyver. Your basic Swiss army knife will have between four and ten tools that usually include some or all of the following. A big blade and small blade, a can opener, a flathead screwdriver, a corkscrew, bottle opener, a tapered reamer hole punch, tweezers, toothpick, and a key ring, all of which are stored inside the knife handle using a pivot point mechanism. And have you ever tried to open a can with the can opener on a Swiss Army knife? It's not easy. You have to position the lip of the can into the cap of the opener and press the sharp part into the lid to puncture it. And then you work your way around the can to kind of jimmy it open. The reamer, also commonly called an awl, is used to punch holes in canvas, leather, and can be used as a crude wood drill or reamer. Many Swiss Army knives feature one of these tapered maintenance reamers that not only works on wood, but also soft metals like copper, aluminum, and some forms of weaker steel. Some of the Swiss Army Knife models are the Classic, Tinker, Super Tinker, Huntsman, Angler, Mechanic Boy, Camper, Rescue Tool, and Swiss Champ. And the categories that they get classified into include Sports and Leisure, DIY, Everyday, LED Lights, Gardening, executive, outdoor, scouting, and multi-tool. And these varying models have some pretty cool features like a magnifying glass, scissors, a ballpoint pen, a sewing eye, a USB hard drive, wire strippers, a nail file, pliers, a wood saw, a metal saw, fish scaler, multi-purpose hook, a ruler, chisel, scraper, and even a wrench. The Swiss Champ XAVT is one of the largest models that comes with a flashlight, pens, and 44 tools that perform more than 80 
functions. And the Giant, which was released in 2006, has 87 tools that are capable of 120 functions. And the whole thing weighs more than two pounds. It'll cost you about $1,000. And I promise you, it will never fit in your pocket because it is comically large. Very cool, but also very impractical. And while Swiss Army knives are made of stainless steel, the company urges you to dry your knife and its tools out if they get wet and suggests oiling it regularly. Stainless steel is utilized for Swiss Army knives because it is highly resistant to corrosion, rusting, and staining, unlike regular steel, and it is quite adept to being sterilized, which is why it is greatly used for knives and surgical tools. In fact, it is even resistant to certain types and concentrations of acid, one of which being phosphoric acid. Yet hydrochloric acid will ruin stainless steel and your hands, your eyes, flesh, and clothes. Do not use hydrochloric acid for anything, really. It's just bad for your well-being. And although stainless steel is metal, it is actually a pretty weak conduit of electricity. The discovery of such a metal led Elwood Haynes to apply for the U.S. patent in 1912. It would not be granted for another seven years. And his eventual business partner, Harry Brearley, had actually tried to get the patent himself in 1915 before discovering that Haynes already owned it. Regardless, the two men allied with a team of investors to form the American Stainless Steel Corporation, established in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Have you ever heard of the Pittsburgh Steelers? Scattered curiosity... It was not always called stainless steel, but rather Narosta steel and Allegheny metal until a trade journal unwittingly called it, quote, unstainable steel. There are more than 150 grades of stainless steel, 10% of which are used the most. Stainless steel can be seen on buildings from the Art Deco era, like the Chrysler Building right here in New York City. And it is quite a durable metal. Cloudgate in Chicago is made of stainless steel. Though we do not call it Cloudgate in Chicago, we call it the Bean. St. Louis's Gateway Arch is 866 tons of Type 304 stainless steel, and the subway cars in New York City have an abundance of stainless steel on the inside and exterior of each car. This wonder metal is less preferred, however, in airplanes because it is much heftier than another popular metal, aluminum. And I have always loved the way that English people say aluminum, aluminium. Love it. Stainless steel is good for knives because it is rugged, heat-resistant, and easy to clean. Obviously, the medical profession does rigorous disinfecting of surgical and dental stainless steel tools, but for your Swiss Army knife, a damp, soft cloth should do the trick. Stainless steel is also 100% recyclable. Swiss Army knives do not originally come from Switzerland, but rather were first made by Western Company in Germany. So why is it called the Swiss Army knife if it came from Germany? Simple. The German name for the knife was Offiziersmesser, a tough word for both Albert Einstein to say, along with American soldiers from World War II. In the late 1800s, the Swiss Army wanted to get folding pocket knives for their 15,000 soldiers. The first knife came out in 1890 and was called the Modell, produced in Sologen, Germany, 
roughly 300 miles away from the border of Switzerland. Why? Because there was no Swiss company at the time that had the capacity to mass-produce the compact knife. So, their Swiss army knives had a stamp on them that said, Made in Germany. However, that changed the following year when Carl Elsener, a former knife-making apprentice and a man who worked in the production of surgical equipment, decided to bring the knife's production and the jobs that came along with it to Switzerland through his company, Victoria Knox, named so as a combination of his mother's name, Victoria, and the French word for stainless steel, Acer Inoxidable. His Victoria Knox company gained the rights to produce the Swiss Army Model 1890 knife from the German manufacturer in 1891, and it had a blade, a can opener, a reamer, and a screwdriver with grips that were made of deep oak. In five years after obtaining the rights to make the knife, Elsinore managed to improve the design when he successfully put tools on both sides of the handles that used the same spring mechanism to hold them all in place. His 1897 prototype had all the features of the Model 1890, but adding to it a corkscrew, cutting blade, and wood fiber ribs. The company has been run by Carl Elsiners since its inception. The first Carl Elsiner ran it until 1918, then Carl Elsiner II ran it until 1950, Carl Elsiner III ran it until 2007, and Carl IV runs it now. And for a time, there were actually two official Swiss Army Knife companies. Victoria Knox, and a cutlery company named Wenger, after its founder, Theodore Wenger. And the Swiss government was contracted with both companies for an equal 50% of their orders. Victoria Knox touts to be, quote, the original Swiss Army knife, end quote. And Wenger goes with, quote, the genuine Swiss Army knife. End quote. Then in 2005, Victoria Knox bought Wenger and now gets 100% of those orders. And there is a surefire way to know if your Swiss Army knife is a fake. And that is by the spring mechanism that also makes Victoria Knox's trademark snap noise when the blade is closed. Also, the Victoria Knox shield should be etched into the big blade of the knife and should also read, quote, Victoria Knox, Swiss made, end quote. In addition to that, of course, you will also find the Switzerland coat of arms, which is basically the same white cross that is found on the Swiss flag, only atop a red shield. It is also the symbol that is found on other Swiss exports like license plates and Swiss francs. Scattered curiosity, the excellent design of the Swiss Army Knife makes it an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. The concept of transforming several tools or weapons into a combined small portable device or multi-tool is likely as old as humanity itself, but it is on record as being a curiosity since at least the Middle Roman times. And while the Swiss Army Knife enjoys brand recognition and is an item that I have carried with me since I was certified as a Knife Safe Scout, I do have to admit that the 1983 introduction of the Leatherman Pocket Survival Tool certainly gave the Swiss Army Knife a run for its money. The needle-nose pliers alone make it far more versatile than the Swiss Army Knife. However, while its size makes it easier to control in your hands, 
It also makes it larger than most pockets, requiring instead a belt pouch. And much like the Swiss Army knives, there are plenty of knockoffs out there. And the name Leatherman, which came from its inventor Tim Leatherman, has become a generic name for all such multi-tools, kind of like Band-Aids, Kleenex, and yes, the Swiss Army knife. Some unique features that can be found on some models of official Leatherman tools are a hammer, tape measure, lighter, and even a tripod. And an even more pocket-friendly tool exists, the survival card, which are those flat metal credit card-sized tools that every person should just put in their wallet because even the most basic models can cut, saw, measure, screw, scrape, plus open bottles and cans. And the Wilderness Survival Cards includes five arrows, an awl, tweezers, nine fish hooks, four snare locks, and two sewing needles. Before the Swiss Army Knife, there were just pocket knives, also called a foldable knife or a jackknife, and they date as far back as the early Iron Age. Though from 600 to 500 BCE, it was far less sleek and pretty with its animal bone handle and unpolished blade. Iberian folding blades have been discovered in Spain that predate the Roman era. These crude yet genius tools would have been referred to as a penny knife, a peasant knife, or a farmer knife. And these blades folded freely out of the handle, unlike the ones that we are familiar with today that utilize slip joints, back springs, and perhaps most importantly, a blade locking system. So these early knives could fly right open at any time and they would not stay open without your keeping it that way. Spring-backed or slip joint knives sprang up around England in the 1660s. Yet until the Industrial Revolution, they weren't accessible to most people because of their cost. They could not be mass-produced they had to be built by a master craftsman. Today, they come in a seemingly endless variety of models and styles like the Barlow, the Scout, and the Canoe Knife, named so for its shape, which resembles a Native American canoe. You have the Congress, the Elephant's Toenail, the Toothpick, and its offshoots, the Texas Toothpick, the Arkansas Toothpick, and the tiny version, the Baby Toothpick. There is the Lady Leg, which embodies the silhouette of a woman's lower leg wearing high heels, allowing the heel to act as a bottle opener. And don't forget the Marlin Spike, the Peanut, the Dog Bone, Hawkbill, Dog Leg, Sow Belly, Cotton Sampler, Melon Tester, Muskrat, Stockman, Sodbuster, Sunfish, and Trapper and Whittler, just to name a few. Spring-backed knives, and a great many devices we use in our everyday lives, do not work without springs. A spring is a device with elasticity, which stockpiles a force called mechanical energy in varying lengths and widths of coils. A spring stores potential energy, elastic potential energy to be exact. Non-coil springs have been around forever, like the ancient bow and arrow. Tweezers are another example of a non-coil spring tool from as far back as the Bronze Age. In the 15th century, Coil springs made their debut as a mechanism in door locks and then watches by the 16th century. And the British physicist Robert Hooke 
wrote the law that is named for him in 1676, which states that the force that a spring exerts is proportional to its extension. Springs are classified in a few ways. One is by using the load force put on them, such as tension or extension springs when the springs get longer, compression springs when the spring gets smaller, torsion springs when they are twisted, and constant springs and variable springs. Another way to classify springs is by their shape. Some examples are a coil spring, a flat spring, machine spring, and serpentine spring, which is the thick zigzag wire that is used in furniture. Scattered curiosity, Mystery Science Theater 3000 ridicules a 10-minute short titled A Case of Spring Fever after the protagonist of the film wishes that springs did not exist and this cartoon named Coily the Spring appears over his shoulder and the man tries to go about his day in a world that is absent of springs. It is a hilarious episode whether or not you have any interest in springs at all. But it quickly shows you in 10 minutes how frequently this mechanism can be found in our everyday world, i.e. rotary phones, door hinges, glove compartments, window shades, foot pedals, mouse traps, guns, pogo sticks, airplanes, etc. And how we do not consider springs very often because most springs that we use are hidden. Springs are good. Just think about your bed, couches, car suspension, trampolines, slinkies, winding pocket watches, and yes, the spring back mechanism on the Swiss Army knife, allowing it to have all those wondrous tools. As I'm sure you can imagine, lock blade knives, also called clasp knives, are far safer than the other designs because they prevent the blade from accidentally closing while in use. And some lock blade knives can be dated as far back as 15th century Spain, which would employ a twist lock to keep the knife open or closed. This gadget will evolve into another proprietary eponym, the buck knife. Wait, what did I just say? A proprietary eponym? What am I even talking about? I am referring to generalized words that are in fact brand names that became synonymous with the product itself, like the aforementioned Kleenex brand facial tissues and Xerox machines, both of which are company names that are used to refer to any facial tissue or copy machine. Other proprietary eponyms are AstroTurf, Brillo Pads, Chapstick, Band-Aids, Dumpsters, Erector Sets, Frisbees, Hacky Sacks, Hoovers, Jello, Magic Markers, Play-Doh, Q-Tips, Thermos, Vaseline, Post-It Notes, Superglue, Jacuzzis, Jeeps, Saran Wrap, Leatherman Multi-Tools, and the Swiss Army Knife. The Buck Knife became popular in the 1960s and was a big hit with the military and sportsmen. It was first marketed as, quote, a folding hunting knife, end quote, but would be referred to as a tactical folding knife some 30 years later, thanks to knife maker Bob Terzula, who named the design a tactical folder. But it should be noted that while these designs are certainly convenient, any locking structure could fail, making a fixed blade unquestionably more reliable as a combat knife, but not 
100% guaranteed safe. And almost as important as your knife staying open or staying closed is your ability to easily access the blade in emergency situations where seconds matter. I play guitar and I keep my fingernails trimmed to the nubs of my digits, which makes the big blade of my Swiss Army knife difficult to open using the nail nicks or slots on the side of the blade. As you know, necessity is the mother of invention and many contraptions have been devised to remedy that very issue by employing thumb studs, which paved the way for the controversial West Side Story favorite, the switchblade. In some states and countries, switchblades are entirely illegal. For example, in the United Kingdom, you cannot carry a folding knife that has a blade longer than three inches. And the knife laws in America vary from state to state. Please consult local laws before you leave your home with anything. While Switzerland is a neutral country in NATO's Partnership for Peace program, it may surprise you to learn that they do have an army. And 18-year-old males will get called in and screened for eligibility. And roughly two-thirds of them are approved. This dates all the way back to the old Swiss Confederacy when the Constitution of 1848, paragraph 18, expressed the obligation of every Swiss citizen to serve in the federal army if asked. The first major mobilization was under the command of Hans Herzog and came about with the Franco-Prussian War, which we discussed in episode 3.1 of Scattered Curiosities, Emperors, Robber Barons, Cowboys, and Indians, Part 2. And in 1912, another general, Ulrich Will, was able to convince Kaiser Wilhelm II how well Switzerland was defended, so it is no surprise that he was put in charge of the second major mobilization of Swiss forces. Lucky for them, they avoided invasion in World War I. And the third major mobilization was at the command of Henry Guisson during World War II. In fact, in November of 1989, there was actually a referendum to perhaps dissolve the Swiss forces altogether, an idea that saw a lot of support until the September 11th attacks in New York City and the Pentagon in 2001. Even though the Swiss army has reduced their numbers over the years, the law still stipulates that a certain percentage of the population of able-bodied males to be at the ready. Those not chosen pay an extra 3% income tax until they are 30 years old, unless they have a disability. The military is led by the chief of the armed forces who answers to the Federal Department of Defense, Civil Protection, and Sports. I went back and read that three times. Yes, sports. And in times of war or even when neighboring countries are at war, the Federal Assembly will vote for a full general to be the wartime and emergency commander-in-chief or Oberbefehlshaber der Army. Officially, there have only been four people ever to have been given the title of general, and forgive me, I may mispronounce these names. Guillaume Henri Dufour, serving for about a decade during the Sonderbund War, the Baden Revolution, Neuchatel Crisis, and the Second Italian War of Independence. Hans Herzog for a year during the Franco-Prussian War, Ulrich Will for four years of World War I, and Henri Goussin in World War II. Switzerland has an Air Force, too, though it is not at the ready 24-7 due to budgetary constraints 
and the fact that flying around the Alps is not a very conservative use of jet fuel. All of the Swiss forces are meant for defense of their homeland and not to go off fighting in foreign lands. And after World War II, Switzerland began to fortify their structures and today, building codes require blast shelters. Because they are neutral, Switzerland does not involve itself in armed conflicts abroad, but it does perform many peacekeeping missions by providing medical and organizational support. Now that we've gone into detail about the Swiss Army Knife, let us delve a little bit into MacGyver's secondary go-to utility, duct tape, or duct tape, which is a cloth sensitive tape that is most often covered in polyethylene. An alternate version of the tape is widely used in the theater world called gaff tape, which is not a shiny gray color like duct tape, but rather matte black in color, and the tape can be removed without leaving behind the sticky residue that you get with duct tape. One confusing bit of information is that duct tape made of cloth and used for just about everything is different from duct tape made of foil for cooling and heating ducts. One is heat resistant and the other is not. Can you guess which is which? Of course you can. Johnson & Johnson undertook the task of designing an adhesive that was rubber-based, water-resistant, and utilized duck cloth and was not meant to be used for heating or cooling systems. The first thing to be named duck tape with a K was simply individual strands of regular old cotton duck cloth that was primarily used for decorations, reinforcing footwear, and covering cables and wires to keep them from corroding. Scattered curiosity, the steel cables that support the Manhattan Bridge were doused in linseed oil and then covered in this type of duct tape in 1902 but this version of duct tape had no adhesive on it. It was merely a protective wrap. Cloth tape with adhesive came in vogue in the 19-teens in the form of hospital gauze. Though in emergency situations, electrical tape will also do the trick. Then in 1923, Richard Gurley Drew invented masking tape while he was an employee at 3M, later becoming masking tape under the Scotch brand name. Seven years later, Richard struck gold again by inventing a clear version made with cellophane named Scotch Tape, and it was the go-to for household quick fixes during the Great Depression. And some sources argue that this was the inspiration for duct tape. Vesta Stout was a parent of two young men in the U.S. Navy while she was employed as a factory worker and was concerned that factory-sealed artillery boxes would hasten combat situation for her boys and indeed all of the Allied forces. So in 1943 she wrote a letter to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt imploring him to have munitions boxes sealed in a tape made of fabric, the same kind she worked with in her factory. Johnson & Johnson was hired to transform their medical duck cloth tapes into an updated version that could be torn off by hand rather than scissors. The yet-to-be-named product consisted of duck cotton covered with plastic and then a layer of gray-colored polycoat adhered to one side. It was instantly embraced by armed forces, which used it on everything from weapons to vehicles. The soldiers themselves named it duct tape, 
either because it was waterproof or that it was greatly used for repairs on the amphibious 1942 Armed Forces Vehicle, D-U-K-W, or Duck. After the war, the tape became a staple in every American household. In 1950, the Melvin A. Anderson Company bought the rights to the product, where it was also used to secure air ducts, which is how it became duct tape with a T. It remained gray because most ducts are gray. However, by 1960, Albert Arno Incorporated trademarked the name duct tape with a T in reference to their heat-resistant tapes that were specifically designed for air conditioning and heating vents. The Melvin A. Anderson Company was then acquired by Jack Call in 1971 and was renamed Manco. Manco turned around and trademarked duct tape with a K along with its cute little yellow duck logo. Today, duct tape is made of polyester, cotton, nylon, fiberglass, or rayon. The naturally gray color of duct tape comes from the aluminum powder that is combined with the low-density polyethylene, LDPE, in the adhesive. However, today, duct tape can be found in an assortment of colors and patterns. The two most common widths of duct tape are 1.9 inches and 2 inches. Scattered curiosity, duct tape is also sometimes called racer's tape, 100 mile an hour tape, and race tape because it is commonly used to make impromptu repairs in the racing world, and other nicknames for the product are rigger's tape and hurricane tape in the military, In the United Kingdom, it's called tank tape. And in the United States, good old-fashioned American gray tape. Duct tape has been an essential tool used by NASA astronauts on every space endeavor since the time of the Gemini missions. And it was vital to patching a hole in the lunar module during Apollo 13 and all the way through Apollo 17 to fix the fender of the lunar rover. Some people claim that duct tape can also be used to treat warts, though that has not been clinically proven and is therefore not recommended. However, many testimonials online will swear that it works. Duct tape, along with WD-40, is frequently called, quote, the redneck repair kit. Mythbusters actually put the Miracle Tape to the test and they were able to successfully use it to hold a car up off of the ground for a while. They also built a canoe, a sailboat that could keep two people afloat in it, a functional bridge, a hammock, and even managed to fly an airplane with its skin covered in duct tape. Not too far off the ground though. Scatter curiosity, in 2003, the United States Department of Homeland Security suggested that citizens should have a disaster supply kit in the event of a chemical attack or biohazard. And two of the items on their list to help combat such an event were sheets of heavy plastic and duct tape so that you could seal off your house. And after the government released its recommendations, critics were quick to disparage the warning as, quote, duck and cover, or, quote, duct and cover. And some DIY projects that you can do with duct tape include making a wallet, a functional hammock like the Mythbusters guys, a necktie, bracelets, masks, belts, baskets, or even a prom dress. In fact, there is a competition called the Stuck It Prom Scholarship Contest 
that actually pays rewards of $10,000, $5,000, $3,000, and $1,000 for individuals and couples who make their prom wear from duct tape. The multi-purpose tool can also be utilized for helping to open pickle jars, wrapping cords, dislodging small splinters from your hand, forming makeshift handcuffs, constructing a sheath for a weapon, a book cover, emergency shoelaces, or even a grabber by taping the sticky side out on the end of a broom handle or another long apparatus. Get creative with it. Believe it or not, the lighter was invented before the match. And these first types of lighters use gunpowder. An early prototype for a modern lighter was designed in 1823 by the German chemist Johann Wolfgang Doberiner. And it was sometimes referred to as Doberiner's lamp, which functioned by passing hydrogen over a metal surface that lit it, producing a good amount of light and heat. But it was not until the 1903 patent of ferrocerium by Carl Sauer van Welsbach that modern-day lighters became possible. And it was the basis required for the Ronson Company to progress the evolution of the tool in 1910 when it debuted the Pistol Lighter and three years later, the Wonderlight, a permanent match-style lighter. George G. Blaisdell founded the Zippo Lighter Company in 1932, which offered a lifetime warranty with its product, which was marketed as, quote, windproof. These first Zippos used naphtha as fuel, but by the 1950s, it had switched over to butane, which could be better controlled and did not smell. Today, a majority of the world's lighters are made in China, Thailand, and the United States. And whether or not you smoke, you are probably thankful for the lighter port in your automobile. You know, the hole on the dashboard where now you can plug in a USB power adapter? Supposedly invented in the 1930s by a south side of Chicago tavern owner, Alexander Kukala, who named the electric heating device that could be used seconds after being activated the Al Lighter. Originally, the word match pertained to lengths of cord that were covered in chemicals that kept them from burning for a period of time, and they were used to light cannons, fires, and guns. Depending on their burn speed, they were either called a slow match or a quick match. Today, we would call it a fuse. The word match comes from the French word mesh in regard to a candle wick. Many unstable chemical matches had been invented, but the first friction match to be met with success came in 1826 when an English chemist named John Walker had discovered it by accident and his friction matches were wood sticks that were coated with sulfur and the tips were mixed with chlorate of potash, sulfide of antimony, and gum. And a box of 50 of these friction matches cost a single shilling and came with a piece of sandpaper that was used as the friction to light the match. Walker named his matches Congreves after the inventor Sir William Congreve, who was an early pioneer in the study of rockets. But these matches were still very dangerous and unpredictable, causing France and Germany to outlaw them. Scatter curiosity, John Walker, no relationship to Johnny Walker Whiskey, never 
patented his Congreve matches. A Scottish inventor named Sir Isaac Holden improved upon Walker's match in 1829 and shared his version with a class that he taught at Castle Academy in Reading, Berkshire. Isaac Holden, too, did not patent his match because one of Isaac's students forged the demonstration over to his chemist father, Samuel Jones, in London, who turned around and patented the product as Lucifer matches, later shortened to Lucifer's, and with good reason. They were unsteady, gave off a foul smell, and had a reputation for explosive ignitions that spewed sparks everywhere. Scattered curiosity, matches are still called Lucifer's in the Netherlands. The devil matches were soon replaced in 1830 with matches that employed white phosphorus, but they had to be kept in an airtight box to keep fresh. These, too, were referred to as Congreves in England, and in the United States, they were called Loco Foco. Alonzo Dwight Phillips received the first American patent for the phosphorus friction match in 1836. A major issue surrounding the white phosphorus ingredient in matches was that a considerable number of people who produced these matches suffered from a bone disorder known as Fossy Jaw, and the cases of customers dying from eating the heads of matches continued to rise, causing a New York surgeon to publish a pamphlet of notes advising people not to use the dangerous item. White phosphorus was then banned in Denmark, France, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and then later followed by Great Britain, Canada, India, Japan, and China. The United States continued to use white phosphorus matches until 1910. The safety match, or hygienic match, used red phosphorus. Not on the match itself, but rather on the surface that you strike the match on. Red phosphorus was first showcased at London's Great Exhibition of 1851 at the Crystal Palace. Matchbooks that came with the striking surface and the matches combined first appeared in the 1890s with the Diamond Match Company. A present-day box of matches consists of 25% powdered glass, 50% red phosphorus on the striking surface, along with other controlling substances. The match head is comprised of potassium chlorate along with some other neutralizing agents. And the tiniest of explosions happens when the safety matches are put to the striking surface. Fire good. Friction matches, also commonly known as strike anywhere matches, can be lit by striking the match, well, anywhere, almost. They were, and still are, a popular variation of the handy innovation, despite being banned by almost every airline as dangerous goods. Safety matches are also dubbed dangerous goods by airlines, but many of them will still let you fly with a book of matches. Philomeny is the hobby of collecting match-related items. Now, I have not smoked for over 20 years, and I am delighted that smoking inside public buildings is no longer allowed. But the law has actually caused one trend that I used to love to grow obsolete. And that is when restaurants and bars used to give away promotional, informational, and memorable matchbooks, helping you recall the name, location, hours, and phone number of that awesome tucked away place that you just happened upon while wandering the city on a pub crawl. 
business cards are not fun at all. They can't set fire to anything, and I don't remember MacGyver ever having one. One thing MacGyver did have that I hope to not only emulate, but surpass, is Seven Seasons on the Air. And today's episode is the bookend to Season 1 of Scattered Curiosities. But, as I stated in last week's Tiny Sode, I will not leave you completely factless between now and Season 2. And I am excited to bring you our holiday show at the end of December. And a quick preview of the topics to be covered in Season 2 are playing cards, drinking games, coffee versus tea, the United States Secretaries of State, the Hindenburg, Kidventions, and the connected stories between the geniuses that make up the monikers of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, just to name a few. Thank you so much for tuning in each week for the past six months, and feel free to share all of our old episodes with your family and friends on whichever podcast platform you trust the most. Until next time, be good to yourself, keep learning stuff, and we'll see you at the end of December and in Season 2. If you'd like to help us keep the curiosities coming, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show.